Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The midnight sky is the road I'm taking. Head high up in the clouds. I'm a wonder on a dog along to anyone. Oh no. Don't be doing that by you. Fire in my lungs can't fight the devil on the tongue. Oh no. Don't be doing that by you. See my With that, welcome back to another episode of Two Bills in a Pod. Jordan McGee, Daniel Hahn here with you as always. We are in the midst of, well, not in the midst. We're in officially June, in the middle of summer. You know, OTAs are going on, lots of juicy storylines, some uh, cap restructuring that has some eyes raised, bro. Eyes raised? Rosed? That's the word. I went to college. Anywho, uh, lots of interesting stuff going on uh, with the Buffalo Bills as we head into OTA season. Daniel, how are you? I, for one, this episode, have not learned uh, to grasp the English language. It's okay, Jordan. We've all been there. When you do over 100 shows, as we have, then you really, you know, these shows and episodes come from time to time. And, you know, now that we're doing every two weeks, I don't expect you to be on your A game as if we were like (laughs) rhythm and all that. Just like I don't really expect the Bills and OTAs to be perfectly in sync and on rhythm. Ooh, see how we did that? transition. Yeah. But we'll talk about OTAs. Bills are definitely in there. They have a good participation rate. So, Jordan, no shame in not being on your A game. That's why you have me to carry the load per usual. I have a big back. Um, I like to think it's from muscles, but probably just Taco Bell. So I can handle this. You know, it's no big deal. Ah. So, Jordan, let me help you out today. And let's start with maybe the first news item of the week and the most important, if you ask me. And that is big baller bean season is still in play for the Buffalo Bills. And while you're starting to get wind of rookie deal signings happening here and there, we talked about a couple last time we spoke, but the salary cap was a little tight. It was about, you know, roughly $4 million. Not a lot to do much other than sign some minimum vets. But Big Baller Bean finds ways to make the cap work in the Bills' favor. He restructured the Stephon Diggs contract to move some of that annual money into signing bonus. Don't know why they don't do this with everybody, but hey, why not? Um, But they did it, and they freed up roughly $7.8 million in cap space, giving the Bills now over $11 million in cap space, which is noteworthy for many reasons. One, you're not working as tight against the cap, but also, and maybe for the – podcast kind of you know clickbait if you need it (laughs) the bills now have room to make a move if they want to and if there's some individual or individuals out there that could help the team they have money now to make it work so jordan i ask you thoughts on stefan diggs contract uh restructuring which i'm sure is just going to be yippee more money and he's going to be here obviously so why not But more importantly, is this move part of a bigger chess move to sign someone new or something else? 
This move to me signals that the Bills are still trying to go after Zach Ertz. I think that's exactly what I get from this from this move, right? You see, like, okay, he restructures his deal, and you're like, huh, that's kind of interesting for like late May, you know, early June, kind of interesting timing, right? And you're nothing that, you know, it's kind of like, huh, interesting. And then we forget Zach Ertz is still out there, perceivably on the trade block. Uh, he hasn't been taken off the trade block to our knowledge, uh, to clear that kind of cap space up to potentially bring in a Zach Ertz, I think is notable. Now, whether they land him or not in a trade, who knows? But to me, I think this is signaling they're trying to put themselves in a position where they could trade and get a Zach Ertz because he's still out there. You know, he's still with the Eagles. He still is kind of that lingering question mark there for the Bills, uh, if they can get him out of tight end position, uh, what an upgrade at that position and uh, a playmaker. I won't say puts the Bills over the top, but adds a really dynamic tight end that the Bills have been kind of lacking for the most part. They've been hoping Dawson Knox could be that. Bringing in Dawson Knox with a one-two, or not Dawson Knox, bringing in Zach Ertz with a one-two punch of him and Dawson Knox would be certainly quite a tight end duo. I think, you know, that's what I get at. It could just be financial keeping, right, to, you know, get some cap situation under control, right, because Brandon Bean has been crunching some numbers lately. But I think this opens up still the possibility that they could trade for Zach Ertz. Now, you know, obviously there's going to be more draft picks and compensation and here and there that has to kind of cross the T's and dot the I's for this to happen. Uh, but to me, I feel like that this puts them in position to once again, not once again, but maybe strengthen their case to the Eagles as a potential trade partner for Zach Ertz. I see where your thought process is going, and I'm not disagreeing that it could be the route that they go. However, I'm going to say that I I don't feel like Zach Ertz is in the Bills' cards right now, and only because if they wanted Zach Ertz, they could have gotten Zach Ertz several different times this offseason, the draft would have been the most blatantly obvious thing with you have the picks out there. The Eagles probably would have made a move that night. The the Zachers contract is something to watch. Dawson Knox development is something to watch. You know, I feel like Dawson Knox would have to be part of a Zachers trade potentially because the Eagles would want something back, maybe even to lessen the, the monetary blow that would come with taking on that contract. But also when I look at the Bills offense and I say, hey, you got all these receivers and you got Josh Allen is having a tight end that kind of needs the ball from time to time going to be something that you absolutely have to inject a lot of cap space into getting and trade. I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, I feel there's more importance on working through the running game problems, getting that better. You have Stefan Diggs, you have Cole Beasley, you have Gabriel Davis, who you want to get more reps to Emmanuel Sanders. We keep overlooking him as a new addition I don't know if the tight end is going to be the primary target in many formations outside the red zone for the Bills. I, it's definitely a nice weapon if you can get it, and I'm sure they'll find a way to make it work, right? Like, if you get Zach Ertz, we'll figure it out. I just view this, if I was to say what I would think that they're doing, to me, you can also carry over cap from year to year. And because the Bills were so, I don't want to say handcuffed with the cap, but they were, they were up against it this whole offseason. They were walking a, a cap tightrope all offseason and have managed really not to make too many significant salary cap cap casualties this offseason while still adding to the roster and what we think was a very good draft class too. They did a good job, but I don't think it's what the way you want to operate all the time. So to me, this is more wiggle room to make in-season deals, 
you can carry over the cap, but it also allows you to maybe work out an extension for Josh Allen or Tremaine Edmonds. I feel this is more the Allen Edmonds pot of money more mm. so than maybe a Zach Ertz pot of money. That's how I view this, this kind of wiggle room that they've created. And that's fair. And I think there's a couple of conversations with that, too. There's looking like, you know, there's projected, you know, for next year how big the salary cap is going to go. This was a report from Adam Schefter that the, the excuse me, the salary cap is going to go up significantly uh, following next year and thus lead to more money for Josh Allen to get him what he wants, but also Tremaine Emmons, too, as well. So I think your point's very fair and and probably more likely what the situation is with why Diggs restructured his contract and saved the money that they did. Um, You know, I just say with backing to the Zach Ertz point that, you know, again, until something happens with him, until that kind of the Eagles say, hey, he's off the trade market or he's been traded to another team, it's just still kind of like out there. It's sort of those lingering things. Like we talked about like Stefan Diggs before, before he was traded to the Bills in that summer. You know, there was rumors of the trade deadline that they, you know, maybe, oh, you know, when Diggs was having his drama with the Vikings or that situation that, oh, maybe the Bills go after him and maybe it's just the right place, right time. So I think that's just something that, you know, not an underlying storyline, but something to just keep an eye out for until that situation is resolved. Um, but I think that, it, again, at the end of the day, too, to your point, that Brandon Bean is really trying to crunch the numbers because you know that Josh Allen contract is going to be massive. And same with Tremaine Edmonds, not north of the $40 million that Josh Allen's going to get per year, but it's going to be quite a hefty price for a guy who is, you know, Tremaine Edmonds, who is still under 25. I think he's, what, 23? It's, you know, mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. super young. Yeah. Yeah, still super young, and he's starting to become a veteran. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the insane level of play that Tremaine Edmonds has been at at a linebacker. So, it, you know, this next coming offseason is when I think these big contracts are going to be doled out, and thus the Bills are kind of, you know, to your point, I would say probably more or less likely putting themselves in position to because they know once that contract's out there and signed, it is going to be a hefty, hefty price tag for both Allen and Edmonds. Yeah, and when you hear the arguments for Zach Ertz or other players in general, you're going to hear, you know, this is a the championship window under the rookie deal of Josh Allen. That That is a real thing. You can really stack the salary in different places than quarterback because once he signs that extension, you know, $40 million of it is going to one player. That's a – even if the salary cap goes up, it doesn't matter. That, that's a large, large pot of money for one individual on a roster that plays – 11 players on each side of the ball, right? That's a lot. And then Trey Edmonds, he's not going to make 40, but he's going to make more than Matt Milano. And he's not, he's going to get paid the same exact time. So you're going to start seeing the allocation of money across the Bills roster have to change. You can't invest as much as they have along the defensive line when you have Josh Allen and Tremaine Edmonds making as much as they do. So that's part of the reason they've done the draft the way they have and addressed the defensive line in that regard but you also know that jerry hughes mario addison charlotte Tule, they're all coming up they're going to be free money free and clear here in the, in the next couple of years that is by design and i just can't see them taking on a multi-year deal with an Ertz and kind of hamstring them because when i think of brandon beans maybe the one knock you could have on the bills offseason was they said they were going to address the tight end position and unless you're a huge jacob hollister fan you know 
played with Josh Allen at Wyoming, had a little, you know, cup of coffee in Seattle, <laughs> but more of a kind of an H-back tight end than anything else. I think they really did not have the capital or the resources to go after a Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith, both of which are now in New England. That is something that when Brandon Bean looks back at this offseason lesson learned, he needs to have a little more wiggle room to be able to, to make more competitive offers. If And again, that's just me. I think the Bills have had a fantastic offseason, but I think it's fair to say that if they haven't addressed something that they plan to do, at least what they verbally said they plan to do, that would be it for me. So, Jordan, we can keep talking about that, but I also want to bring up the fact that OTAs are going on. This is something that we didn't talk about this time last year because COVID shut down OTAs and mini camps. But the Bills are practicing. They are working out together. You're starting to get visuals of Emmanuel Sanders in a Bills jersey. You're seeing Carlos Basham and and Groot in a Bills jersey. Mm -hmm. Deion Dawkins is acknowledging that the three new offensive linemen are huge, huge men. Um, they're much larger in person. So, you know, when you see a guy the size of Deion Dawkins saying, whoa, these guys are huge, that is a, a good sign for winning that battle off the bus. But a couple things real quick, because you know my thoughts on OTAs and mini camps. I'm a little bit of a Debbie Downer when it comes to the excitement of hearing all the good news about it. The Bills' participation rate is one of the best in the NFL. I believe they have over 70 players in practice. This isn't like a Broncos situation or the Packers situation where there's some protests or, you know, Aaron Rodgers is off in Hawaii and his receivers all said, yeah, we out too. You know, the Bills have a high participation rate. There are mostly veterans who are not participating at this point, such as Jerry Hughes, Mario Addison, uh, Sarla Tulele. But those are veterans that have built up a lot of trust with this coaching staff that I don't feel that's a huge oh my gosh, their, their jobs are on the line. I don't think that. I just think veterans know their bodies differently. They know this coaching staff. They know the playbook. I'm sure it's fine. I'm not that worried about it. And Sarla Tule even has sat out a full year. So this is a guy getting ready for the long haul after missing all of last season. But overall, you're getting a lot of reps for the younger guys, especially along the defensive line with those guys out. Attendance is probably my biggest exciting factor because having that high attendance means you're building chemistry, you're getting back after it, you're installing the playbook, you're doing the things you want to do to get ahead of the game this time compared to others. Like I said, other teams don't have this attendance. And then we can talk about individual players. But overall, for me, the biggest takeaway thus far in OTAs is the high attendance rate. I am equally excited to see Josh Allen rocking a visor. Um, can't go wrong. I don't know how I feel about it. I would say you can't go wrong. It looks cool. But I feel like quarterbacks who install the visor, it's 50-50 if it makes them any better. It, it makes it look a little bit like older. Like I don't know if I love the, the visor look on Josh Allen. I will say that my stupid lizard brain just went when you're talking about the rookie linemen, how we know how big they are. I really would hope that like when it comes to training camp, they do like all three of the rookie offensive linemen do some sort of escorting into Josh Allen into the camp. I think it'd be hilarious. Like they'd be their bodyguard, his bodyguards or something. That's just a random side note. My brain works that way. Um, to the point about attendance, I think that, I mean, again, it's a really good sign to see, you know, right? The, this whole team has like a bitter taste in their mouth after last season, right? They were one win away from the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, the way that they lost to Kansas City, getting crushed. You know, there's a lot of sentiment of getting that sort of taste out of their mouths. And now that OTAs are starting, it's kind of the beginning of the brand new season that's on the horizon in the fall, right? You know, that September is going to be here before we know it. Um, 
you know, it's really encouraging to see that that's, you know, there's so many people coming out in terms of, you know, coming out to these OTAs. Uh, you know, I'm really excited about the rookies. I think that Carlos Bashman, to me, of all the rookies, excites me the most. I know Gregory Rousseau is our first-round pick, but I think, like, Carlos Bashman, of all the rookies, is going to get the most playing time. I think he is going to be... I wouldn't say a day one starter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm gonna. I, I would say that he's gonna see the day field. One rotational. You know, quite a bit more maybe than Rousseau. Bashman's just very interesting. We we talked about him. You know, at length. You know, before the draft, and you know, the Bills were able to snag him late second round. He's an incredibly intriguing prospect. That you know, and so far there's been a lot of positive reviews from Basham um, in rookie camp, which you love to see, right? Uh, you know, so. It, OTAs, like you said, we both kind of are like not, we're not trying to take away like, you know, oh, Emmanuel Sanders made a crazy catch in OTAs. Is he going to have 1,500 yards receiving this season? You know, we don't jump to those conclusions. But I think participation in OTAs is key because the fact that it is voluntary and so many guys are still willing to come, not just, you know, the rookies and, you know, some of the guys who are on one-year deals, but like veterans too, it's a good sign. I think this whole team is kind of, feeling very motivated to feel like, yeah, we're in a position where we can win the Super Bowl and have that actual confidence from where they were a season ago to being like, yeah, I think we can actually win this whole thing and, you know, thus give them that motivation and, you know, the players feeling motivated this upcoming season in 2021. And I don't want to kind of drop the the the, the news shell. So if you're listening and you want to know, well, what is happening in OTAs, even though Daniel over here is a Debbie Downer and thinks everything is like sunshine and rainbows and OTAs, which I do. Don't get me wrong. Everyone is doing great. I'll tell you some of the, the news and nuggets that, that have been leaked in terms of a lot of, a lot of press, like you said, are able to see OTAs this time through, which is great for us. But so far it looks like AJ Epinesa is appearing to have a different attitude, confidence. He's getting a lot more reps. Um, that was something in mini, you know, not rookie mini camp, but some news that he wasn't getting as many reps as maybe Carlos Basham or Gregory Rousseau. But it looks like AJ Epinesa has changed his body type a little bit from his interviews as well. He admitted that the adjustment from Iowa to Buffalo was a steep climb, not just the NFL, but also the fact that the playbooks were vastly different from what they were running at Iowa versus what the Leslie Frazier defense is in Buffalo. Uh, so AJ Epinesa is making a lot of news when you hear about OTAs. Dawson Knox is catching the ball in OTAs, and this is one of those things where it should get you excited to hear that. But I go immediately to, okay, so what? I, I, is he even being covered? I don't know. Is it seven on sevens? Is it, you know, I don't know if he didn't catch the ball this time last year. But you know, those are positive takeaways that you can get. The other piece of it that is interesting that we'll continue to watch is the outside cornerback battle has begun between Levi Wallace and Dane Jackson, each getting different looks and reps outside. Both of them are going to face some very good wide receivers out there when you consider how deep the wide receiver pool is for the Bills. So even if Dane Jackson's working with the number twos, he's probably lined up against Emmanuel Sanders or Isaiah Hodgins or Gabriel Davis. I mean, he's still getting some really good reps against some really good receivers. And then the other piece, because I think we all love quarterback talk, uh, Josh Allen looks real good. I mean, he should, right? He's probably an MVP candidate. He's been in this offense. He knows almost all the receivers. His connection with Diggs apparently is right on point. They're not missing a beat. He's working it with Emmanuel Sanders. Sounds like that's going well. But then you look at the backup quarterbacks because there is a little bit of a battle there 
and you wonder what the future holds for guys like Jake Fromm, who, depending on reports, Jordan, I think you've probably heard both of them, you know, hit or miss if he's going to be on this roster. It sounds like there's a an opportunity maybe to cut him if, you know, he doesn't develop the way you want. But I, I disagree. I think he's still the, the number two of the future. When you hear about him, it sounds like he's not leading receivers very well in practice with the football, um, not throwing in a way that gives his receivers the best chance to make runs after the catch or a little inaccurate. And Mitch Trubisky, you know, not looking as good as Josh Allen, but is looking better than Jake Fromm in that he is making good throws, but his indecisiveness is still there a little bit. He's holding onto the ball a little too long, which, again, there is supposed to be a drop-off in these quarterbacks when you go QB1, QB2, QB3. So, to me, Jordan, I don't get much news out of it, but in case people are wondering what is going on, those are the different reports that you hear out of there. And also, one last note, because this is a very big highlight of our time last year, Jordan, my man, Seabass out there, Mr. Bass, the mm-hmm. kicker, he was perfect from field goal kicking in the media portion as uh-huh. of uh, yesterday in the practice on uh, June 2nd. So haven't gotten reports for today as we're recording, but yesterday my man Bass was just splitting the upright, so feel good about that. Oh, boy. You know, it's not a two bills in a pod episode if Daniel isn't bringing up some sort of special teams, you know, action. I know he – Tyler Bass kicks. I'm telling you what, if he goes to training camp at ever – I don't know if you've ever been to Bill's training camp, Daniel, but if, if you ever did – I feel like you'd be the one who's clapping the hardest in terms of punts and field goals in training camp. So, uh, you know, you got to shout out special teams every time. Um, well, Jordan, <laughs> there's a problem. If, if you, special teams weren't important, I haven't been to Bill's training camp, but I have been to Colts, and they have them on a, a separate field, so they're kicking much further away than the stands. So they don't get the, the noise, right? Someone better clap when T-Bass is out there <laughs> kicking away because he needs to feel that noise, feel that pressure. And if not... Sean McDermott better institute the Dan Campbell way and put a pet line right behind him to roar and give him that that excitement <laughs> and motivation to make those kicks. And, well, in this case, we'd have to have a live buffalo. You know, we don't want to copy Dan Campbell right out. You know, kind of have a little bit of transparency, of course. Um, in terms of the quarterback note, um, I, again, I'm not a, a hater of Jake Fromm. I'm just I, I come across as that I I'm willing to give him a chance. But I just don't know necessarily if he is that backup guy of the future. Now, Mitch Trubisky, um, you know, listen, hey, there's going to, like you said, there's going to be a downgrade, right? You know, he is that backup. He's here for one season and then he's going to be bouncing. So, you know, this is more of for Trubisky, this season is going to be him improving, you know, less pressure on him, essentially, in theory, right, uh, to back up Josh Allen improve his game, right, learn under Dable, and maybe follow him to wherever Dable gets hired next season. Um, Jake Fromm, again, I, I think the jury is out. We don't, we haven't seen him at all. Like, we didn't see him last season because there was no none of this last year. Jake Fromm's just, for all we know, has been hiding in the woods for the past year. You know what I mean? Like, we just haven't seen what he's been able to do. And I think there is a little bit of pressure, like you said, that he, to make this roster, you know, I feel pretty confident in the ability of Trubisky. Now, granted, it's not, you know, he's got his problems. Obviously, that's why he went from a starting role to a backup. But if I feel much better about starting Trubisky than I do about Jake Fromm. And maybe that's just kind of, what's the word? Maybe I'm just kind of not prisoner of the moment. That's not the word. But I've seen what Trubisky's been able to do. I only can go off of what Jake Fromm has done at Georgia. And 
you know, it's going to be a lot of interesting news and notes from Jake Fromm in terms of what he does this offseason and OTAs, mini camps, and then training camps. Um, and then the corner battle, is it's so interesting because, again, when Dane Jackson was drafted, I I didn't really think much of him. As a seventh-round pick, you're kind of like, eh, maybe if you just play special teams, here you are. But this this staff really believes in Jane, Dane Jackson. Like, you look at this draft alone, where corner was a position that we thought could very well be addressed, and they technically did, and you know, in, in the later rounds, but they, they're very confident in this group of corners. Like, they could have drafted an Afitu Melifonwu early in the third round. They chose not to. And I think, to me, the fact that whether it's directly or indirectly that they have this vote of confidence for Dane Jackson really speaks highly. You know, we didn't see a ton of him last season, but I'm very curious to see him uh, in training camp in terms of is, uh, listen, from what I'm hearing, Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott are have high praise for Dan, for Dane Jackson. I want to see it happen. I want to see what this praise it is that they're talking about. So it's going to be an interesting battle. Again, Levi Wallace, the presumed favorite, but I'm going to be very curious to see plays from Dane Jackson because this coaching staff in this front office, are they they think pretty highly of him for a guy who was drafted in the seventh round to be able to potentially get that second corner spot uh, opposite Tredavious White. There's, there's something that maybe we haven't seen yet that I'm very excited to see what Dane Jackson can provide, especially this offseason where we can actually see him in camp and see, okay, what has this guy got? I'm just curious to see how he develops. You know, I, your point on Jake Fromm is accurate. It's the fear of the unknown. You don't know because you've never seen him in preseason in a Bills uniform what he's capable of or how he runs the offense or what the offense even could look like under him. So to say you want Dane Jackson or Jake Fromm to get real playing time in an NFL regular season game this year is probably a little bit of a concern. Uh, I'm interested to see. He's probably one of my most intriguing people to watch this preseason. Just to, I assume he'll get a decent amount of reps, and I want to see what he looks like. But, you know, when you hear that he's behind on throws, not leading receivers, well, don't forget, last year, my man was practicing in, like, the fifth field away from anyone of any merit whatsoever. I mean, he wasn't even working out with any real bills. He was hiding away as the COVID quarterback. You know, he just wasn't even around these guys that he's throwing to today, unless a couple of them were from the practice squad. So to say that his timing's off is okay, that, that sounds about accurate to me. You know, I, I don't know what people would expect from him, but I am curious to see what level the playbook he understands. And come preseason, that should be a mute case. I mean, this is a guy that should be working out with these receivers now, getting up to speed. He'll be practicing with people. Um, you know, we'll see where he lands. Dane Jackson, the little different story for me, it's how much has he developed because he did play last year. We have seen him in a Bills uniform. We've seen him even start out opposite uh, Tredavious White, most notably in that Arizona game. And Dane Jackson, in small kind of bursts, has shown an ability to be a turnover machine. He's gotten a few interceptions. He's gotten some pass breakups. He clearly is very comfortable in zone coverage. Remains to be seen if he can match up with the speed on the outside, things that he'll be asked to do. But, again, a rookie coming in in COVID year, I'm interested to see how he progresses and also what his upside is compared to Levi Wallace when you have essentially a very similar scouting crew in the Bills front office because, again, we talk about they don't have a lot of turnover. In one breath, 
they found Levi Wallace as an undrafted rookie free agent who they didn't feel confident. They didn't feel they didn't feel the need to draft him, but clearly they saw something in him where he's excelled in Buffalo versus a guy that they saw something in him to draft. And what does that talent difference look like? Now, again, seventh round pick doesn't mean the talent difference is anything, which is something I need to see too. It could also just mean they didn't think Dane Jackson would sign with Buffalo, so they brought him in and brought somebody else and undrafted that, you know, maybe a little higher talent. So uh, seventh round is always weird, but I am curious how that talent difference kind of shines throughout this offseason and how we see it pick up when it gets to, uh, you know, the competition itself. Mm-hmm. And I. I will say to the point with, you know, the corners, again, that 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 second quarter position has always been kind of rotating, you know, in terms of we saw Levi Wallace last year, we saw some Josh Norman, right? And to your point, you know, there's a lot of potential with Dane Jackson. And, you know, I'm very excited. I'm very excited to see what he can do. Um, whether he wins the job is, you know, kind of up for him to decide in, in a sense, you know, in terms of how he battles in camp. But... You know, if anything, if Dane Jackson can show if this what's the words I'm trying to find, if Dane Jackson can prove that, wow, he's a starting caliber, not starting caliber, too, as well, but just a solid corner in that depth. Right. I think that's the big thing is that that second corner position has always felt like sometimes it's been lacking depth. You know, Levi Wallace has had great moments. Levi Wallace has also had some pretty bad games where he's getting blown in coverage and just getting passed by. Same with Josh Norman last year. A lot of times he just got blown by in coverage, and it wasn't it wasn't cute to see. You know, it, Norman struggled a lot at times last year. So if Dane Jackson can provide solid plays, right, with some breakups where he can stay with top receivers, and this is also and to the point you mentioned a little bit about ago. You know, in terms of getting great experience, in terms of you know going up against some of the best receivers in the league, like this receiving core that you have to go up against with Diggs and Beasley and Sanders, that's some pretty great competition to go up in camp to prepare you for the kind of receivers that you're going to see in the NFL. So uh, if he can just kind of provide solid depth to that corner position, I'll feel really good in terms of the secondary overall because sometimes last season the secondary was a little bit shaky and you're hoping that you know, maybe guys like Dane Jackson can step up, provide some depth, provide some playmaking abilities so you feel a little bit more confident about the defense because they started off slow last year and it took them till midseason to get into shape. So you're hopefully that we don't see that sort of, it doesn't take halfway through the season for the defense to kind of get their act together and it can just be consistent for the rest of the season. Yeah, that would be ideal. They definitely got off to a very slow start last year, but they did pick it up when they needed to. A lot of that was contingent on the lack of a pass rush early. Um, injuries to Matt Milano, too, did not help. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm excited to see that competition. Like you mentioned, I'm excited to see future Hall of Famer Rashad Wild Goose, also where he plugs into this defense. Um, and then the other piece of that, you know, we didn't talk about the cornerback position with the digs money that freed up. But a lot of people are also going to point to that outside cornerback spot and look at it and say, okay, here's another place that they could add a veteran this year, especially when you look at other teams, what, what some of those post-June cuts might be, what training camp cuts happen. you got to have a little bit of money to compete with some of those guys, and there's definitely, um, there's definitely some potential that you could also see a late veteran addition because, again, this is a defense with Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott. A lot of guys in the league have experience there. These coaches have a lot of experience with certain players, a la Josh Norman. 
they can bring certain guys in quickly to adapt if they don't feel like Levi Wallace and Dane Jackson are going to give them enough. So another thing to watch out for, especially with that creed up digs money now, that you can get a little more aggressive in that market too when it comes to cut time. And finally, this is also OTA-related. I think we talked about this a little bit, hit and miss here and there. But over the past two weeks since we've uh, not recorded, the COVID vaccination questions mm. have not stopped in Buffalo. And again, we talked about, I believe, with Cole Beasley because he had his own Twitter beef with different people. And that has now, the fear that I had wasn't that, whether you get vaccinated or not, I'm not going to step on people's decisions. I have my own, and I feel pretty secure about it, but I'm not going to, you know, go into the mindset of others, especially on a sports podcast. But my worry and your worry too was, would that Beasley stuff end up becoming a distraction for others on the team? And what you're seeing now in OTAs is it definitely is a question that they're being asked about. I've seen Josh Allen give a response. I've seen Sean McDermott give a response. I've seen Deion Dawkins give a response. I saw Jordan Poyer come out yesterday and say that he's not going to give a response, but he was asked a question. Jordan Poyer's wife probably has a lot to do with these questions too. But that being said, it's clear that the COVID vaccine distraction is there, but it's a good time for it to be there because it's, you know, June and not September. But Jordan, the question remains, is this something that could potentially bleed into the regular season? Because I'm, while people are vaccinated and things are opening up, I mean, I'm in Indianapolis, the Indy 500 just happened uh, with what, 150,000 people in the stands. It was a good turnout. The, the problem here is COVID is still technically here and they're still technically testing. So if any Bills players gets popped for COVID, especially in the regular season, I'm worried these distractions on vaccinations and questions and blah, blah, blah are going to rear its ugly head at the wrong time in the regular season. And I don't like distractions because there's a team that has mostly avoided all of those under Sean McDermott thus far. Um, so before I get started with anything, I- I'll agree with your point in that. Obviously, we are a sports podcast. I have my feelings about the vaccine. You have your feeling about the vaccine. You know, um, I-, I think there's there- there's two points that I wanted to make. The one that Josh Allen's response has been basically he said that over the past week, like, hey, I'm not really going to talk about this. I-, I think it's kind of everyone's sort of private decision, which I think that's probably just the way to go, you know. Just say, I think that Josh Allen and the team needs to come together and like be like, hey, guys, let's just not talk about it. Whether you want the vaccine, whether you don't want the vaccine, let's just not talk about it. Let's keep this in-house. You know, this doesn't need to be a priority because a lot of Bills players, Cole Beasley in particular, have strong feelings about not getting the vaccine. And, you know, everyone has the right to do what, what, what they want with their body and how they, you know, whether they want to get the vaccine or not. Obviously, it's not a requirement in any regard. Um, and But I also go back to this point. Like, we look back at last season, right? COVID wasn't a major delayer for the Bills, right? Like, the Bills, in terms of the Bills itself, like, we saw, like, their schedule get changed because of other teams and other teams' COVID outbreaks, but the Bills themselves, they had a couple of players who were out because of COVID or COVID precautionary reasons. For the most part, this... There wasn't major shakeup in terms of big players, you know, um, out for COVID. So, I, I, you know, and this was also now we're going into a season where there are vaccines, right? That there are, you know, other players and personnel around the league are getting vaccinated. So the threat of COVID, you know, and ideally going into the fall isn't going to be as much of a threat as it was a year ago when we didn't have this vaccine. So 
And the Bills, you know, last season did a pretty good job about managing COVID. And I think at the end of the day, right, when it comes to when the season starts, that guys are going to take this seriously, which, you know, not saying the Bills didn't. You know, we didn't see any players who were going to clubs or bars or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I think there is this mindset that the Bills have when the season starts of like, let's not do anything to jeopardize the season, right? Let's not do anything that would, uh, you know, jeopardize our chances to win a championship. And I think that will kick in come September. I think, it, you know, listen, everyone's going to have emotions about this and it's still kind of lingering. And like, to your point, my worry is that, God forbid, there is a COVID outbreak with the Bills and like a Josh Allen or you know, Trey White have to sit out, you know, like then that whole these conversations that Cole Beasley and others have had are going to rear its ugly head. That is a big worry. But I think Josh Allen, I think the whole team needs to come together and be like, guys, we're just not going to don't like whatever your feelings are about the vaccine. Keep them to yourself. Don't post it on social media. Don't talk about it to the media. Keep whatever feelings you have in the locker room. And that's it, because it, 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 you know, it's while it's already kind of too late in terms of we know how some people stand. I think as a team, they need to just come together and be like, this is just we just got to squash this because this is starting. We don't want this to become an issue. And I think hopefully they have that conversation and I hopefully everyone will understand. But it, it is a bit worrisome. You can hope that these sort of conversations don't rear its ugly head come later in the season. Yeah, and that was essentially Josh Allen's comments that he gave was that he and the leadership council of the Bills needed to work on a joint response, right? Like basically have a statement that they can say anytime they're asked a question about the vaccine, you know, opinions of the team, blah, blah, blah. Because the other thing you're worrying about here, too, is when you're in a, you know, if you're listening to this in a car and there's only four people in there, that's four people Maybe you all have the same take on the vaccine. Maybe one of you doesn't. But imagine that car has 90 people in it, you know, and that's what the Bills players are looking at. So I don't think it's reasonable to expect that all 90 people at all things in life are going to be thinking the exact same way. And the vaccine is one of them. So Josh Allen's role as a leader and the rest of the leadership council is to maybe put their own opinions aside and figure out the best response to support everybody, even when everyone's opinions are different. So to me, this is different than the you know, some of the social justice pieces that were happening this time last year. This is a this is a different animal, in my opinion. And I do agree that Josh Allen not saying anything about his own vaccine. Most people will take that and say, oh, that means you didn't get vaccinated. But I also think there is merit to the idea that 90-plus players on this team plus coaching staff, very important players on the team are going to think very differently. You don't want to throw any of them under the bus just by responding to a media member and making them kind of out to be that, that black swan of the group. Right. So that's, that's kind of where I come out on it. I just, I'm glad it's happening now. I, I do think it's a positive that if this is the only thing that we can talk about, about this team, you're probably in a good space, you know, because you're not talking about, you know, random crimes. You're not talking about players not, you know, hey, you have no linebackers. You know, you're not talking about that. Um, how are you going to compete this year? You're, you're talking about things that are kind of way off the field, but still important, but way off the field. And, and that's probably a sign that this team is pretty set and ready to go and make a Super Bowl run. I just don't want any weird distractions or weird media comments to, to ruin that and hurt someone's feelings or whatever. So the chemistry is the key for this team and whatever they can do to keep it's what they should be doing. So Jordan, I will also add on closing note with that. I think I put on Twitter 
And I really just missed the blue cheese or ranch questions. Yes. Those were much better <laughs> than the vaccine questions. I'm, I'm kind of over these now. Uh, it's blue cheese, though. That's the correct answer. If you're in Buffalo, it is blue cheese. And if you say ranch, you will be exiled from Buffalo. That is a, that's, I, that's a baseline. I agree. But I also agree with Emmanuel Sanders, who was judged harshly when he first arrived. And he admitted that the blue cheese in Buffalo tastes different than blue cheese everywhere else. And as someone who lives in other places, that is a fact. The blue cheese in Buffalo is texturally better and different than you might have elsewhere. But, yes, I also go with blue cheese just for the record. So, Jordan, that takes us for the main bill stuff. But we do want to talk draft because why not? It's fun. It, we, you know, don't get to talk about it now that we're Super Bowl contenders. But, <laughs> hey, you know, we can talk about another division right here. And I know I teased the NFC North, but – I'm just going to let that Dan Campbell glory simmer with me for a little bit longer. I want to save him for the right time when I'm hungry on a steak or something. But that will take us next to the AFC North. And the reason for this, Jordan, once again, just like we've done the AFC South and the, or the AFC West to start off in the AFC East, to me, Jordan, this again, I'm looking at the teams that are going to impact the Bills in the AFC North. You got Baltimore, you got Pittsburgh, and you got Cleveland. All three of those teams were playoff teams last year. The Bills obviously made their work known with the Ravens. They took care of the Steelers. The Browns got axed by the Chiefs, but they also added Jadavion Clowney to the mix for them. So this is a very interesting division where you do have to watch what they're doing because the survivor of that division, because I think it's a very, I mean, it's always been a very ground and pound kind of beating up style, heavy defenses, strong running games. Um, the, the winner, whoever comes out of that is a formidable playoff opponent. So I am interested in what these teams have done. So Jordan, AFC North, we'll start off with the Cincinnati Bengals. To recap, they picked at number five. Their first pick was the wide receiver, Jamar Chase. He rejoined uh, Joe Burrow in Cincinnati, who's coming off an injury. They did address the offensive line with Jackson Carmen, the guard from Clemson, and Joseph Asai, a defensive edge rusher from Texas in round three. And then they had a crap ton of other picks, and they addressed literally just about everything you can think of. So, Jordan, I'll start with this team. I, I think their best pick for me was getting Joseph Asai, followed by Cameron Sample, the back-to-back edge rushers in rounds three and four. They are a team that is going to try to throw the ball a lot and run up the score a lot. If their intent is to score a lot of points, then you're going to need some edge rushers who are going to be pass rushers that can stop teams from trying to keep up with you. Uh, so I do like the value that they got those two players. I think they're going to fit in well. Will they start right away? Aside, probably sample. You know, again, like we talked about with the Bills guys, rotational. But those are guys that I think could project to be some really good pieces from this draft. The reason I did not pick Jamar Chase, even though he's pick five, man, it's really tough for me to say that you made a great pick there, even though I love the talent, when the top offensive lineman was sitting there and your quarterback, who you literally dropped back over 50 times a game, ended the year on injured reserve because he got hit a ton. I just don't see how you don't address protecting him multiple times in this draft, and they had a chance to get Panay Sewell, they went with the receiver instead, so we'll see how that works out for them. Yeah, that's my whole thing with this Bengals draft is that while Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow are like, roll, reunited, it's amazing, woo! Um, that's great and lovely, but Panay Sewell is on the board. 
Not saying that Jamar Chase can't be a great player. Jamar Chase could very well be a fantastic receiver for them. But they needed help on the offensive line. Now, they drafted Jackson Carmen, the tackle from Clemson, in round two. They drafted Deontay Smith from East Carolina in round four. That's great and all, but you could have had Panay Sewell, right? You could have had a bona fide, projected, kind of Hall of Fame-like tackle, pro bowler, first-team all-pro kind of tackle I thought that was a big mistake by the Bengals in this draft. I mean, I agree with you. I think Joseph Asai is a guy we talked about as defensive end. I really like that pick. Um, they did draft a kicker in round five, Evan McPherson from Florida. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, put him on your radar for your fantasy team as your first overall kicker pick. Um, listen, a lot of it's going to be, the, depending on, can this offense be explosive? You know, can will this Jamar Chase pick end up being, you know, the thing that kind of leads the Bengals to some success. I would certainly hope so. I think Jamar Chase is a great receiver. I think he's certainly a guy that has a lot of potential. But it means nothing if that offensive line is still garbage in Cincinnati because Joe Burrow is coming back from an ACL injury. Are you really going to, you know, if you don't address the offensive line, you're going to have yourself an Andrew Luck situation. And the Bengals cannot afford to have that happen to them uh, when they've just when they have been gifted a franchise quarterback in Joe Burrow, who is very good. You know, before he went down, he had a really good rookie season. So uh, I worry that the Bengals made the wrong pick. But uh, you know, they have some really good players in this class. It's just a matter of does it come together and can they see some improvement and success in twenty twenty one. It's a weird draft. You can tell that they feel like they don't have a lot of talent, and they just said, I want to get a lot of talent. I don't care where it is. Give me the best player available, which, you know, again, I think is very smart, but your best player on your team and most important player is Joe Burrow. Like you said, Panay Sewell can protect him. He ends up going to Detroit with my man, Dan Campbell, out there to eat some limbs, but you're also ignoring the offensive line to some degree when you're in the AFC North, which is also like a a mortal sin for me because the rest of these teams we're about to talk about, we're talking Brown Steelers and Ravens and all of them needed to address their defense. The Steelers who will go to next, they picked a pick 24. The Steelers were a team that had a very highly rated defense for much of last year. They kind of fell off due to a lot of injuries that happened to them. Again, older defense, towards the end of the year, especially when they played the Bills, you could start seeing the uh, cracks starting to form as they started getting banged up. They lost several players in free agency this year. So the thought process would be you're either going to beef up the Steelers' running game to help Ben Roethlisberger maybe not rely on so much of his own passing because he's older, um, but you're also going to have to restock that defense that took a hit in free agency and Wells' age. And when I say that, that means Joe Burrow, Steelers are coming after you, right? I mean, that's what we're going to say with all these teams. And the Steelers, though, didn't really do that. They started in round one with Najee Harris, the top running back off the board from Alabama, followed by Pat Fryermouth, the ten, tight end from Penn State in round two. Then they go with Kendrick Green, the guard in round three from Illinois. Jordan, Najee Harris is a very interesting player. They let James Conner go. You get Najee Harris. I this feels Pittsburghy to me. I don't know. It just feels like a running back that's not afraid of contact. He's ready to take the ball a lot. Um, a guy who's going to fit in perfectly to the culture there. I don't know if it's going to work right away because of their offensive line losses as well as the defensive losses. But you do have the top-rated running back off the board at 24. That's a very interesting pick. 
Um, but my favorite pick for them, well, I have two. My favorite pick for them is probably Isaiah Loudermilk from Wisconsin in the fifth round. I don't know what the hell the Wisconsin Badgers were doing right. between Wild Goose and Loudermilk. I, I'm going to get some Badger gear. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be watching a lot more Wisconsin games. I mean, Loudermilk in Wisconsin, it is perfect. I mean, why didn't he not go to the Packers? It's just amazing. I love that pick. And also, because you know I'm all about special teams, they got a punter in the seventh round, mm-hmm. Presley Harvin the third from Georgia Tech. That's two S's, Presley, and a man who's the third version of Presley Harvin in round seven. So they're doing a little bit of everything. I think if I, again, it's going to sound familiar, the worst pick for me for the Steelers, probably Pat Fryermouth. Again, I I agree, best player available possibly. You use the Titans a lot in Pittsburgh. It, it makes a lot of sense. But they needed defense and offensive line, and they waited till after round two. And then you see them try to overcompensate with a lot of players along the defensive side of the ball and two, and two linemen. Yeah, I mean, they didn't draft an offensive lineman until round four with Dan Moore, uh, the tackle from Texas A&M. I mean, listen, I think the running game was atrocious last year. I think Najee Harris will definitely provide a spark plug and an instant improvement at that position. But that's not going to mean anything, again, same point with the Bengals, if the offensive line is terrible. Because once again, they're going into a season with Ben Roethlisberger, who in his, what, definitely late 30s, if not already early 40s, you know, he needs protection. And the Steelers did not have a ton of that it, to be able to, for the passing game or the running game, you know, and the, you wait to address that position in the fourth round. I think it's a massive mistake. Um, I like Najee Harris. I like, he's a great human being, first of all, you know, just a fantastic human being. And he's going to fit well with that in that Steelers organization, both as a player and a person. Um, Pat Fairmuth, we talked about him as a tight end prospect of like, mm, maybe we would take a chance on him. Um, agreed, I think round two, not that it was a bad value pick, but it's sort of like, eh, did you need this? Did you really need this kind of player? Um, it's an okay draft. I, I really do like Najee Harris. I'm a big Najee Harris fan, so I'm, I'll be biased when I say that. Um, and I think that he's going to certainly improve the run game, but again, if you are going to ride the wave of Ben Roethlisberger at his age and his ability, which has not exactly, you know, he's been okay, but if you're going to ride another season with Ben Roethlisberger, he cannot afford to get hit and go down again because unless you want to have a Mason Rudolph experience once more, it's just the offensive line has got to improve, and I'm worried that the Steelers just didn't do enough to address that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's going to be 38-39 at this point. Um, he he just is older, and the Bills get the Steelers right out out of the gates. So you're gonna get the best version of him, but when the Bills saw him last year around week what is it twelve or thirteen, you know he was a little bit jelly armed. He's already gonna be pretty slow. He's never been a guy who's gonna move a lot, right? He, you know where he's going to be if you want to tee off on him. But yeah, you gotta you gotta protect him if you think that's your horse to get to the Super Bowl. If not, I. I would not be surprised. The Mason Rudolph show is going to begin a little bit earlier. Where is Duck Hodges? All these things are questions I have for them, but they do have louder milk, so we can look forward to that. Uh, next up, Jordan, the Baltimore Ravens. They had two first-round picks. That's what happens when you trade Orlando Brown to the Chiefs. And so round one was basically a, a lock for a lot of people. 
Rashad Bateman, the wide receiver from Minnesota, goes to Baltimore. They use their second round one pick on an edge rusher from Penn State, Odafe away. And then they had two third-round picks, Ben Cleveland, the guard from Georgia, and Brandon Stevens from Southern Methodist, the cornerback. You know, Jordan, for me, I, I feel like it's hard for me to say that my favorite pick was Rashad Bateman. That was pretty obvious. But also, I, I don't know if they use the receivers as much in the same way as others. So it's a little tough for me to say how much I feel about that pick. The pick I like the most for them, personally, I am a big Tillon Wallace fan from Oklahoma State. He was the round four wide receiver. He is a guy that could potentially be a sneaky slot and special teams contributor. And when you look at the way Lamar Jackson plays, extending the plays like he does, a wide receiver who can kind of go off script a little bit, has speed to escape, that's a player that might sneakily um, contribute a little more in offense than people think if he can get on the field and, and kind of get some reps with Lamar Jackson. So I really like Tillon Wallace, and I even do like the next pick, Sean Wade, the cornerback from Ohio State, because he's a little bit of a – a guy, a positionless player, but definitely a talented one where he could play cornerback, linebacker. He can do a lot of different things for you. So I do like both of those picks. And, and just, a, you know, if I had to say something I didn't like about them, you know, you lose your, your left tackle. I hope they have another because they didn't really address that at all in this draft. Um, it's one of those things where Lamar Jackson is very escapable. But same conversation. I feel like we're having a broken record here. If he has to use his legs to escape 24-7, I just don't think that's a long-term formula for success. And at some point, even Greg Roman in his crazy offense needs some sort of offensive line to really dictate the line of scrimmage and not be so reactive to where defenders and linebackers get through the line. So we saw it a little bit, too, in, the, um, in that playoff game, in the divisional game, where that offense was stuttered, you know, for the Ravens. And, you know, I like Rashad Bateman as a player. I think, again— really solid receiver. Um, the offense last season, I mean, two years ago, Ravens were lighting up the world. They were the new kind of like, whoa, like flashy kid. Lamar Jackson wins MVP. 2020 was very kind of, eh. Uh, they weren't exactly, you know, the offense that was of a year ago. And, you know, they drafted Marquise Hollywood Brown. He really hasn't panned out. So they're hoping maybe Bateman can kind of, maybe make up for the lack of production that Marquise Brown has lacked. Um, you know, Odafa Owe, you know, from Penn State is a project, but again, could be a nice player for them. Uh, I agree. I really like the pick of Sean Wade in round five as a corner. I think that's a kind of undervalued pick that could come back and be sort of a, uh, we'll wait and see. Um, I thought this was an okay draft for the Ravens. I think, like you said, to the point about the offensive line, you know, not that the Ravens' offensive line was god-awful, you know, compared to, like, the Bengals or uh, even the Steelers. Uh, but I look at this Ravens team, and I think that, like, again, they are a playoff-caliber team. You know, it, it's a matter of, I think, a couple things. With Lamar Jackson, have teams started to figure out his play? Have teams kind of become wiser to this sort of read-option offense that the Ravens are running? Um and two, you know, is a Bateman going to be a guy that kind of is re-sparks the offense, if that makes sense? Um, to really, I guess the word I'm trying to find is really bring that offense back to what it was in, you know, 2019 versus what it was in 2020. So I think it was a solid draft. I think they had some good moves getting the, you know, again, getting the second round or the second first round pick but like you said they didn't draft the offensive line position 
It's a bit of a question mark, but I think that this is a pretty okay draft for the Ravens. Yeah, it's okay. And to your point, what would really jumpstart their offense to get back to where they were in 2019, it seems to be they were missing that tight end piece. They're, they used those two tight end sets to an extreme. They moved on. They made some different shuffles at tight end, and they just took a long time to get their offense back going. But they did figure things out at the end of the year. Unfortunately, they ran into a Buffalo buzzsaw that, you know, so it stops everyone in their tracks, except for Kansas City, it feels like. <laughs> and finally, Jordan, the Cleveland Browns, they yes. lost to the Kansas City Chiefs. They had a first-round pick at 26. They went with Greg Newsom II, the cornerback from Northwestern, followed by Jeremiah Wusu kamora from Notre Dame in round two. And then Anthony Schwartz, the power of the Schwartz, is on their side with the wide receiver from Auburn. And then they had a slew of other picks. Jordan, my thoughts on the, the Browns draft is I will tell you that I thought they had the best draft of all the teams in the AFC North, just thinking from a position of need while also letting the, the talent kind of fall to them. Greg Newsom was the smart pick. I think a lot of people predicted that they would go cornerback there. Greg Newsom seemed like, again, kind of like Rashad Bateman. It wasn't much of a surprise when you saw Newsom go to the Browns. What was a surprise to, to, to some people might have been that Jeremiah Rusa Kamora was there in round two because he was a guy that was even up there in the round one talks at various times to even Cleveland. They let the board come to them. They get two good defensive players that potentially could start right away if they can figure things out. And, and especially Jeremiah Rusa Kamora, again, another positionless type of player, definitely a linebacker, but you got to work with his size to make him really fit well. I think it might take a little while to get him in, a, in the best position to figure out what works best for him. The pick I like the least is probably Anthony Schwartz from Auburn, the third-round wide receiver. My man Dean King did kind of convinced me that he's a big dropper. And I know if I know anything about wide receivers, if you drop the ball, you're not going to be very good at your job <laughs> at catching the ball. Therefore, I'm not a big fan of that. But overall, the Browns this entire offseason, they had one mission, get a better defense. And this draft reflects that. You look at what they've done in free agency. They've also addressed that defense. I really like what they've done. Um, you know, overall, I think this is a very strong draft. There's some, there's some mystery. There's definitely some guys I'm not familiar with as much, but they clearly like second and third renditions of people. They have Greg Newsom the second, Tony Fields the second, and Richard LeConte the third. So they definitely uh, have a trend going here. But all joking aside. I think they just did a nice job kind of adding more depth to their defense, definitely their, their weak point, because they, too, like Buffalo, had not much answers for Kansas City. I absolutely love this draft for the Browns. Hands down, this was the best in the AFC North. I think this was one of the best in the league, to be honest with you. I'm a, I love Greg Newsom because you watch the tape of Northwestern. I'm obviously if I'm kind of a becoming a Northwestern fan, kind of random, but to the point, I watched a lot of tape with Greg Newsom hoping that maybe the Bills could get him, that he is a great corner in terms of, you know, press coverage, that he can really make some great deflections, physical guy. I really love Greg Newsom. And then Jeremiah owusu Kamara, you know, to get him as late as they did in the second round, he's a hybrid defensive end linebacker kind of player. To get him in the second round, absolute home run steal. I really do like Anthony Schwartz, too. I, I like speedy guys. I like guys who are fast. It's call me like, call me basic. Call me a basic NFL fan. But guys with speed really intrigue me. And you know, this Browns team, I think overall, not just in this draft, but had a really, really strong offseason. Like you said, they really addressed that defense. 
you know, bringing in like a Jadavion Clowney, bringing in a Greg Newsome, Jeremiah Wusu Kamaroa. This Browns team had a really, really good offseason. And I think if you're a Browns fan, you have to be excited because number one, more than anything, you had a good team that went to the AFC divisional round. But number two, there's finally stability with that Cleveland Browns organization. They've got a good coach. They've got a great GM. This offseason, I think, proved that. that there is stability within this organization, finally. And I think Cleveland, you know, going into this is very well could be, you know, I wouldn't say the favorites for the AFC North, but I mean, it's going to be a contentious division with the Steelers. But I, the Browns could very well win the AFC North. I think that that is not a shock or a bold statement um, you know, if they can build upon a successful year that they did last year, I just thought this draft was really great. I also like Dimitri Felton in their sixth round guy. I, I, you know, he's a nice speedy wide receiver too as well. Um, but really, I, I thought this was, I mean, by far and away the best draft in the AFC North. I think this is one of the best drafts in the entire league. Uh, I, I thought the Browns did really good. And I think it's, it's going to show you the Browns know what they're doing now. They have stability and uh, that is, in and of itself, is like a sigh of relief for Cleveland fans. So, since you gave me the opportunity, I'll, I'll call you that. you basic. You know, I, I'm sorry. I'm the Starbucks it. of NFL fans. Sue me. <laughs> I mean, speed is great, but if you can't catch the ball and have anvil hands, it doesn't do you much good. But, I, I mean, overall, your points are true. I think, for me, this AFC North is, is as simple for me in terms of looking top to bottom with what the team's needs are, best players available. I can find multiple players in this Browns draft. We didn't even talk about James Hudson from Cincinnati, who's a large human being as well, who played really well the tackle position for them in the fourth round. But I look at the other drafts, and, you know, we usually say who had the best draft, who had the worst. You know, I, it's almost a toss-up for me with the other three teams because there are individuals, especially at the top end when you look at Jamar Chase and Najee Harris, that you're like, okay, yeah, and Rashad Bateman, that address of the receiver. I like the first-round picks, but then you look at – just some of the other elements of those other three drafts, it's like, it feels like you all dropped the ball here. It feels like you didn't address the elephant in the room that you needed to. Um, I think if I had to guess the worst draft, I might just say, I, I don't know. I might just say Pittsburgh because I feel like they didn't address a lot of defensive needs that they had. And they didn't address the offensive line until later when they could have addressed it sooner. Cincinnati, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. All these people are going to play. You know, they're not very good. Um, so a lot of these guys are going to field and probably have some good production right away just by default. But I agree with your point. I mean, but this division with Ben Roethlisberger slipping away and aging and then not really having a real replacement in my mind, it feels like it's a Browns-Ravens division this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just got to wait and see it, you know, the Ravens, Lamar Jackson won the MVP. He's very, very good. Stefanski, to me, got that Sean McDermott playoff rub that first year. You make the playoffs, you can take a breath and know you're probably not going to get fired the next year, and now you can really build this process and this culture the way you want. Don't discount that first-year playoff because that gives them a lot of breathing room and the players a lot of breathing room to now focus on just getting better. And I also and I think that's a big part of the Bills' success throughout the, this process under Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean. So, Jordan, with that, let's go around the NFL. We have a few notes here before we close things out. Jordan, around the NFL, OTAs are going on, but there have been some, some news and notes that I want to touch on. The first is the Falcons are in the trade market with their star receiver, Julio Jones. 
that feels old, but that news has dropped. I think we touched on this a little bit. We knew that rumor was out there. Bills will be linked, especially now they got more cap room. But, you know, this is a real article. The Falcons have, quote, high demand, end quote, for Julio Jones. <laughs> Shocking. I know. They're just not giving him away. Uh, Jordan, any uh, thoughts on Julio Jones and having high demands for him? I mean, listen, it's not wrong. You know, you want to get a good return for Julio Jones, but I think you'd be fooling yourself if you're thinking you're going to get a first-round pick for Julio at this point. Like, listen, he's a great – don't get me wrong. If you if you just told me straight up, hey, do you want Julio Jones on your team? I'd be like, yeah, I'd love Julio Jones. First-round pick? No, 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 no. I think the Falcons are – overvaluing the worth of Julio Jones. Um, you know, maybe five years ago, sure. First round pick, understandable. So it's his play has kind of dipped off, you know, a little bit. Um, I, he's still a great receiver. He's still a guy that can be a contributor. But, 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 but if you think you're a Falcons, if you're the GM of the Falcons and you think you're getting a first round pick for Julio, you're 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 thinking in 2015 because that ship has sailed a long time ago. So, uh, listen, there will be teams who want Julio Jones, but the asking price is at that asking price for what Atlanta wants. Nobody's going to pick up the phone. Well, his contract demands are part of that reason too. If you make a trade, I'll say this from a Bills perspective: there's no reason to believe the Bills are in the Julio Jones market unless he gets cut. And the reason he might get cut is. The Falcons just simply don't have enough money to pay their players, so they have to move money around. That's kind of the reason this has come up as well. But if they cut Julio Jones and he's making $11 million from Atlanta and willing to take pennies from someone else just to play on a one-year deal, sure, maybe. But does the fit make sense? I mean, you can always find a spot for Julio Jones, right? But, you know, with the way the cap is structured for the Bills, when you hear rumors about it, no. I mean, I saw somewhere that it's going to take both Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison in a trade back to get Julio Jones. I'm telling you, that's not happening. Even if Groot is ready to go day one, I don't think the Bills are going to trade both of those guys just to get one more receiver. So next up in one of my favorite stories of the week, Miles Garrett has retired from basketball. I don't know if um, you know that he uh, was playing basketball. But no. He, uh, there were some videos of him at a local gym. I don't want to say it's the YMCA, but you get the point. He's working out in the offseason. He's playing some pickup basketball with the boys randomly at a gym, and he was just dunking on some fools um, and embarrassing them. First of all, you should have known you were going to be embarrassed when you see Miles Garrett walking around the court there. But after a few videos surfaced of him just dunking over fools, Kevin Stefanski has announced that Miles Garrett has retired his wow. basketball career, Miles Garrett confirmed that was his, his off-season sport, pick up basketball to stay in shape, but he does not play it at all during the NFL season. So now that OTAs are here, he has retired. Maybe he'll pull a Michael Jordan and come back out of retirement next off-season, or maybe he'll pick a different sport to work out in. Uh, well, first of all, uh, what a great announcement for a guy that never just played. Bra- like, can, you, can you imagine... Like, you're just playing, like, you're at the YMCA, you're just kind of, like, messing around, and Miles Garrett's like, hey, you want to play one-on-one? I'm like, no. No, I would not. Thank you, Miles Garrett. I don't want to die. 
you know his move. It's not the step back three pointer. It's going to be to charge the lane and just destroy you. Yeah, because he's a massive man. He's like what six foot five, two hundred two hundred eighty pounds. Yeah, he would destroy me. I would like not to be destroyed if I'm playing pickup basketball. I'd be like, thanks, Miles. I don't want to die today. I have a life to live, and I don't want to be destroyed. Literally, physically destroyed. And you can pick up basketball. Uh, yeah, he would dunk on me and then also steal my soul and do like a Kamayama Ya like Dragon Ball Z style if he played against me. So well, I, that would probably happen for most people who play against me. But, um, you know, Miles Garrett, glad to see that he's retired from uh, basketball. Who knows? Maybe in a couple of years, the Cleveland Cavaliers could use him because certainly they've not been doing too good. So, uh, you know. Good for Miles, I guess, to focus on football and not just dunk on innocent bystanders. Yeah, well, you know, good for him. You know, the the coaching staff is okay with him uh, retiring at this point, too, to focus on football. So next up, and finally, this is the final one I got for you. The Boston Globe is reporting that Matt Patricia, yes, the good old rocket scientist, is being groomed by Bill Belichick to replace him in New England as head coach. Matt Patricia right now has a job. He's not a, a coordinator. He's not an assistant coach. He's just a behind-the-scenes worker there in New England, but it sounds like that behind-the-scenes is basically he is shadowing and just learning everything Bill Belichick does to one day replace him in New England. Uh, Jordan, thoughts on this, and what are your feelings if you're uh, Josh McDaniels? Because that don't feel good. Uh, Josh McDaniels and uh, – uh, Matt Patricia do a boxing match to be the next head coach for New England. That's what I say. Um, You know, Matt Patricia tried to, again, he is one of the many Patriot coaches who went off and tried to implement his Patriot way and failed. Failed badly. Failed miserably. To the point where the Lions were like, I'm going to get a head coach who's willing to bring in an absolute lion, a literal lion, to training camp because better than what we had with the rocket science nerd. Um... You know, it's, it is better. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. He's got a line in camp. I mean, Matt Patricia wouldn't have done that. He would have just made a, you know, a mathematic formula. Um, is Dan Campbell your number one coach in the power rankings? Because uh, he is for me. I, in terms of the criteria of the power ranking. power. A power? In terms of power. Sure. Like if I'm like if I have to fight somebody, I won't want to fight Dan Campbell. I guess that's that's my barometer. Um, yes. Listen, I I think with the, you know, McDaniels has been kind of for the longest time been sort of thought as, I guess, the predecessor to Belichick. I think either way, whoever replaces it, whether it's McDaniels or Patricia, it's going to be a mess because everyone like you're, you're, you're trying to copy something that doesn't work. Like Bill Belichick and his Patriot way is a very like nuanced thing like coaches have tried to replace it and it hasn't worked like I guess Brian Flores is kind of maybe the only guy right now that's been somewhat successful from the Patriots coaching tree but pick McDaniels pick Patricia either way it's not going to go well uh, for the Patriots just because you know you're going to try to be something that you're not I think these coaches are going to try to be we saw it Patricia was trying to be a coach that he wasn't and it failed miserably McDaniels probably the same way so let them duke for it either way when belichick is gone and they have to replace him with patricia or mcdaniels i think it's just going to be rough it's not going to be uh a good experience for patriots fans 
I agree. I mean, the, the, the straw that stirs New England's culture is Bill Belichick. I mean, he is proven even when he was a defensive coordinator with the Giants. You know, this guy is a defensive wizard. I mean, he is one of the best game planners and ways to take apart offense. I mean, he is a defensive genius who can game plan for just about anyone. Now, the culture piece, I agree with maybe the thought if I was a Patricia or McDaniels and you look around the league, like you said, everyone else seems to fail when you try to put this culture somewhere else. So to me, the only place that I have a shot to succeed if I'm going to do this exact same thing is in New England where the culture is already well established. The problem is you're not Bill Belichick. So there's always going to be a drop-off unless something is missing that I just don't see. But these guys have all tried to prove that they can do it elsewhere. They can't. Now they need to find a way to be the one to get that head coaching spot and keep the culture there. That's their best shot of being successful head coaches, in my opinion. Um, so I, I don't mind if I were Matt Patricia. I think it's a great opportunity. If Josh, if I was Josh McDaniels, I'd be pissed because <laughs> this is the guy that turned down the Colts job after he was hired because he got more money and Bill Belichick kind of convinced him to stay. And I don't think it was convinced him to be my offensive coordinator for three years. I think there was that secret, you know, you can take over this ship. And now Matt Patricia comes back after really sucking in Detroit. I mean, can we say this? At least Josh McDaniels won a playoff game with Tim Tebow, right? <laughs> like there's, there's still that for McDaniels that he should hang his hat on. Just no one liked him because he comes off as like a person you wouldn't like. And it seems to be the case. Matt Patricia also no one likes him, but he took a potential playoff Detroit Lions team and just stripped it down to the studs and just destroyed that entire franchise to the point that Matt Stafford's no longer even there. So, you know, the, Patriots, that's the only place that I think those two guys, or I should say the best place that those two guys have a chance to win. I'm still cautiously optimistic that Josh McDaniels could be good somewhere because I do think I've seen enough of his offense to say it's adaptable. But if I was him, I would be pissed. And you have to imagine that if the Patriots do have a bounce back year or Mac Jones progresses, he might be the one that might actually walk away this time because Matt Patricia being there as a quote-unquote groom for the next coaching spot Seems a little bit uh, disheartening if I was McDaniels. But, hey, that's what you expect. The Patriots suck. Belichick's sleazy. You know, you get, you get what you sow. So, anyways, Jordan, that is all I got for this week. All right. Well, that'll do it for another edition of Two Bills in a Pod. Thank you so much for listening. Again, make sure you follow us. First of all, on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, where we post our episodes, and also Facebook and Twitter, where you should really follow us the most because that's where we drop our latest episodes in case you miss it. You can follow Daniel personally at Han on Twitter, me, Jordan, at Osby44 on Twitter. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Enjoy the summertime. Enjoy the weather. We'll talk to you about more OTA and off-season goodness. See ya. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.